0: Hello, and welcome to the iFormRx podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. This is Stuart Haynes, and I'm the host of the iFormerX podcast. Atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, or ASCBD, is very common, and the majority of pharmacists, whether they work in ambulatory care clinics or community pharmacy practice, encounter patients with coronary artery disease or cerebrovascular disease nearly every day. And there are lots of studies to help guide our patient management and therapeutic decisions for these two manifestations of ASCVD. But there is a third and less commonly studied form of ASCVD, and that's peripheral arterial disease. Now, our legs are perhaps not considered critical organs, at least not in the same way that we think of our brains and hearts as being very critical. Nonetheless, peripheral arterial disease can be quite debilitating and can lead to limb amputations. And perhaps more importantly, PAD is a harbinger for other bad things, because if there is ischemia in your legs due to restrictions in blood flow and unstable lipid plaques, then you can bet there are other parts of your arterial vasculature that are also impacted. And it is for this reason that I thought reviewing the recently published Voyager PAD study, an anticoagulation trial which enrolled patients with peripheral arterial disease, would be a great one to critically examine here on the iFormerX podcast. And joining me today to discuss the Voyager PAD study are Rachel Lowe and Navia. Varshney from the University of Colorado, Skaggs School of Pharmacy, and Pharmaceutical Sciences. Dr. Lowe practices at the Anschutz Internal Medicine Clinic, and Dr. Varshney, at the time of this recording, was finishing her PGY-2 ambulatory care pharmacy practice residency and heading off to Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Campus in Baltimore, Maryland. Rachel, Navya, it's great to have you both today as first-time contributors to the iFormerX.
1: Thank you so much for having us, Stuart. Thanks so much, Stuart. I've been a fan of your podcast for a while, and I'm super excited
0: to be here and for our discussion. So let's start with a quick case. Uh, CC is a 63-year-old Caucasian male with long-standing history of type 2 diabetes, hypertension, peripheral arterial disease, and he's morbidly obese. Two weeks ago, the patient had elective revascularization surgery on his right leg, and prior to the procedure, CC was experiencing pain in his right leg during nearly all physical activity, including walking only a few feet. This was interfering with his attempts to lose weight. The patient likely has some degree of coronary ischemia based solely on a a recent EKG, However, he states he does not experience chest pain or shortness of breath, and thus he's refused cardiac stress testing and a PCI because if it ain't broke, you don't need to be going looking for trouble, he says. Today, the patient reports that his surgical wound is healing well and that the pain in his right leg is improved. While he still has some residual pain from the surgery, he reports that he doesn't have the deep, achy pain in his leg like he used to have when he used to walk. Currently, he takes ramipril, indapamide, amlodipine, and spironolactone for hypertension, insulin glargine at bedtime, and linagliptin for diabetes, torvastatin, and low-dose aspirin. He also has a few Roxaset tablets for acute pain left at home, but he hasn't taken any of them for the past five days. His blood pressure today is 126 over 62 and a pulse of 88, and it's regular. He had labs drawn yesterday in advance of his visit today, and his lipid panel is actually really good. Total cholesterol of 112, LDL of 52, HDL of 44, and triglycerides of 88 milligrams per deciliter. And his fasting glucose was 116 milligrams per deciliter, and A1c of 7.9%, and an estimated GFR of 46 mLs per minute. Electrolytes were all within normal limit. So Rachel, this clinical scenario is not uncommon. Indeed, this patient is very similar to about a third of the patients I used to see in my VA clinic. So I'm wondering what's going through your mind in a case like this Is there additional information that you'd like to collect and assess during this encounter? And what kind of interventions would you be considering?
2: So this patient is also very similar to those that we see in our clinic. Probably most pertinent is that this patient has an ASCVD given his history of peripheral arterial disease, also known as PAD, which we'd want to be sure we recommend appropriately tailored lifestyle recommendations as well as evidence-based cardiovascular risk-reducing therapies. So first, we'd want to verify his smoking status, and if he was smoking, we'd want to encourage smoking cessation. With regards to the lifestyle, we'd want to discuss his diet, his activity level now that his pain has improved after his revascularization. We'd want to get an updated weight and encourage behavior modification to help facilitate weight loss given his history of morbid obesity. He is appropriately on statin therapy with the Torvastatin. However, we'd want to verify that he is on a recommended high-intensity dose. Further, given that his current LDL is 52 milligrams per deciliter and below the recommended threshold for considering additional lipid-lowering therapy, we would feel comfortable continuing the presumed high-intensity statin, assuming that he has achieved at least a 50% reduction from LDL from baseline. His blood pressure is 126 over 62, which is at goal of less than 130 over 80 on a four-drug regimen. It is noted that he possibly has some degree of coronary ischemia, although no history of MI, and he is currently denies any angina symptoms. At this time, we do not recommend the addition of or switching to a beta blocker therapy. CC's A1C is currently 7.9%, and we feel a reasonable goal would be a less than 7.5% given his history of micro and macrovascular disease although one could consider a goal of less than 7% if able to achieve safely without the risk of hypoglycemia. Given his history of ASCVD and obesity, we would want to consider a GLP-1 receptor agonist or cautiously an SGLT2 inhibitor as part of his regimen. First, we'd want to consider switching his lenoglyptin to preferably a GLP-1 receptor agonist to help control his blood glucose as well as um, promote weight loss. This patient does have a reduced EGFR of 46, so we'd want to verify his past trend to determine the appropriateness and safety of considering starting metformin. Depending on his insulin glargine dose, either of these agents would help with insulin sparing effects as well as cardiovascular protection. Finally, this patient is currently on a low-dose aspirin post-revascularization for a symptomatic PAD. Although thrombotic regimens are well-established in coronary artery disease patients, With the use of dual antiplatelet therapy preferred in those undergoing PCI, there aren't many trials solely dedicated to PAD patients, and even fewer that have looked specifically at PAD patients' post-revascularization. Until recently, most of our guidance on antithrombotic selection was based on small trials or even PAD subgroup analysis of stable ASCVD patients.
0: So, Navya, let's talk about the results of the Voyager PAD study. The the paper is entitled Roxaban in Peripheral Arterial Disease After Revascularization, and it was published in May 2020 in the New England Journal of Medicine. We provide a link to that paper on the iFormerX website, but can you give us a brief summary of the study design and its major findings?
1: So the Voyager PAD trial was a multi-center, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled endpoint-driven trial, which was conducted between 2015 and 2018 and took place across 34 countries. So in this trial, a total of 6,564 patients over the age of 50 years who had undergone lower extremity revascularization for symptomatic PAD within the previous 10 days were randomly assigned to receive either rivaroxaban 2.5 milligrams twice daily plus aspirin 100 milligrams daily or to receive placebo plus aspirin 100 milligrams daily. Patients were excluded if they were deemed unstable or had an increased bleed risk. Now, although patients were able to use clopidogrel during the study period, those with anticipated long-term use of clopidogrel, generally over six months, were excluded. In this trial, the primary efficacy outcome was a composite of acute limb ischemia, major amputation from a vascular cause, myocardial infarction, ischemic stroke, or cardiovascular death, while the primary safety outcome was major bleeding as defined by the thrombolysis and myocardial infarction, or TIMI, criteria. So the results from the Voyager PAD trial showed that the baseline characteristics in the study's population were actually similar between groups, with the median age being 67 years old, and the majority of patients being Caucasian males. Most patients were on appropriate cardiovascular risk reduction therapy with statins and ACE inhibitors or ARBs and a majority of patients did have concomitant hypertension and or hyperlipidemia. Now, when it came to clopidogrel use, actually about half of all the patients in either group were on clopidogrel. At the median follow-up of 28 months, the incidence of the composite primary outcome was significantly lower in the rivaroxaban plus aspirin group compared to the aspirin alone group. Specifically, the Kaplan-Meier estimates of the incidence of major adverse cardiac events and limb events at three years was 17.3% in the rivaroxaban group, which was less than the 19.9% seen in the placebo group, resulting in a 15% relative risk reduction in our primary outcome. And actually, this decreased risk for the primary outcome in the rivaroxaban group was seen as early as three months and continued through three years. Now, one secondary outcome I did want to highlight was the incidence of unplanned limb revascularization for recurrent limb ischemia, which also occurred at a lower rate in the rivaroxaban group and was a statistically significant result. Moving on to the safety outcome. So the rate of TIMI major bleeding at three years did not significantly differ between the two cohorts. The study also looked at a secondary safety outcome of major bleeding and this was defined by the International Society on Thrombosis and Hemostasis or ISTH criteria. In that regard, ISTH defined major bleeding incidence was significantly increased in the Riveroxaban cohort. Overall, in thinking about these major results, the safety and efficacy results were consistent across all major subgroups including patients with critical limb ischemia and regardless of the vascular intervention received such as endovascular and surgical approaches.
0: So, Rachel, not surprisingly, the combination of an anticoagulant and an antiplatelet agent was more effective than aspirin alone, but combination therapy also led to perhaps some higher bleeding rates. But it depends on how you define major bleeding. Does the increase in major bleeding events seen with combination therapy in this study negate the potential benefits? And what about the rate of fatal bleeding and intracranial hemorrhage, the kinds of bleeds that most clinicians and patients are really concerned about?
2: That's a great point. As Navia mentioned, the trial's primary safety endpoint was the TIMI major bleed. While the bleeds were more frequent in patients taking the rivaroxaban plus the aspirin compared to those receiving aspirin alone, the difference was not statistically significant. If we look at each component of the TIMI criteria, there was not a significant difference in intracranial bleeds or fatal bleeding between the two groups, which, as you mentioned, is what patients and providers are really most worried about. However, when the trial assessed major bleeding using the ISTH-defined criteria, which is a more conservative measure of bleeding, patients in the rivaroxaban plus aspirin group experienced significantly increased incidence of bleeding. This further supports that we should continually be assessing patients' risk of bleeding and considering the risk-versus-benefit of using rivaroxaban plus aspirin. Based on the study, the investigator's own risk-versus-benefit analysis revealed that for every 10,000 patients who were treated for one year, the rivaroxaban 2.5 milligram twice a day added to aspirin would prevent 181 primary efficacy outcome events at the cost of 29 TIMI major bleed events. So this suggests the overall benefit of using the thrombotic approach outweigh the potential risk of bleeding.
0: So Navya, what do you perceive as the strengths and weaknesses of this study? Do you think the results of this study can be generalized to the patients you typically see in your practice in Denver, or just a select few? So
1: let's start off with how this trial was conducted. First, this trial utilized an ideal prospective, multi-center, and randomized study design. Second, this trial included patient groups who were similar in demographics at baseline, had concomitant comorbidities such as hypertension and hyperlipidemia, and who were largely on lipid-lowering and antihypertensive therapy. This certainly increases the study's external validity to many of our ambulatory care patients that we see in practice who have somewhat similar characteristics. Additionally, this trial was adequately powered with a large sample size of around 6,500 patients to detect a meaningful difference in outcomes, and those outcomes were consistent across subgroups, which then strengthens the study's internal validity. Lastly, and most importantly, in my opinion, this was the first trial to be conducted specifically in PAD post-revascularization patients to demonstrate an antithrombotic approach that reduced both major adverse cardiac events and major adverse limb events, outcomes which are highly relevant to patient quality of life and healthcare burden. Of course, this trial did come with limitations that may limit its generalizability to our real-world patients. First, patients with poorly controlled hypertension or diabetes were excluded. And as we know, several patients seen in our ambulatory care clinics may have blood pressures or A1Cs above goal. Thinking back to the trial's demographics, although most patients did have concomitant hypertension and or hyperlipidemia, only 11% of patients had a previous myocardial infarction, which may misrepresent many of our real-world PAD patients. Also, most patients in the study were enrolled in Europe, and fewer than 3% of patients were Black, and we know that Black patients are at the highest risks for peripheral artery disease and its complications. Also, as I mentioned previously, although clopidogrel use was similar between groups, this was not controlled for and may distort the study's outcomes. In fact, a recent subgroup analysis was just presented at an American College of Cardiology meeting on the Voyager trial results and suggested a numerical increase in major bleeding based on TIMI and ISTH criteria between patients on clopidogrel versus not taking clopidogrel with no additional benefit. Therefore, I think additional studies may be needed to justify the use of dual antiplatelet therapy in this setting. Overall, even with these limitations, sort of thinking about the overall impact factor of the Voyager results, this is really the best data that we have to use when guiding our decision-making surrounding safe and effective antithrombotic treatment post-revascularization.
0: So let's return to our case. Recall that CC has established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and recently had a revascularization procedure in his right leg. Let's assume that CC does not currently use tobacco products and quit smoking more than 10 years ago. In addition to encouraging weight loss and exercise is tolerated, would you consider adding an anticoagulant to this patient's current medication regimen? And if so, would you favor rivaroxaban, which was what was used in the Voyager PAD trial, or apixaban or even warfarin? Or would you consider using an alternative antiplatelet regimen? So
2: thinking back to the trials baseline demographics that Navia described, our patient Cece actually matches many of those pretty well. CC's hypertension and diabetes were fairly well controlled, although with some room for improvement, and he does not have any high risk bleeding factors. In general, we think of high bleed risk patients as those who have a history of bleeding, those who are in multiple antiplatelet or in oral anticoagulants or with chronic NSAID use. Patients may also be at higher bleed risk if they are of advanced age or low body weight or if they have confounding disease states such as anemia or CKD. Our patient, CC doesn't have many of these risk factors except for maybe that he is 63 years old with some level of CKD, which may compel us to monitor his bleed risk a little bit closer. Now, applying this to real life, what do we and our our PAD patients care most about? Well, most of it is what the trial addressed, preventing life-threatening cardiovascular events, preventing loss of limbs, or subsequent unplanned revascularization, and minimizing the risk of life-threatening bleeds. Based on this, I think the patient would benefit from the thrombotic approach used in the trial. That would be the rivaroxaban 2.5 milligrams twice daily in a low-dose aspirin. Of course, we would like to assess the patient's ability to adhere to a twice-daily regimen as well as any potential insurance restrictions. Since rivaroxaban was the only DOAC studied in the Voyager trial, we can't extrapolate benefits seen in the trial to other DOACs. So I would be hesitant to recommend something like apixaban since we also would be
1: unclear of the appropriate dosings in the setting like this. So in addition to thinking about using alternative DOACs, like Rachel mentioned, I'd like to circle back to your comment on warfarin. There actually have been a couple of small trials looking at warfarin plus antiplatelet use in PAD patients after surgical revascularization that have shown superior graft patency, but haven't really addressed the major cardiovascular and limb concerns, which we did see addressed in the Voyager study. Additionally, we can't really extrapolate these benefits to patients that undergo other types of revascularization, such as those with endovascular rather than surgical approach. So what about using our P2Y12 inhibitors like clopidogrel, ticagrelor, or prasugrel? Well, these agents have been studied rigorously in our CAD patients who have undergone PCI placement. However, the use of these agents in PAD post-revascularization is less established. Dual antiplatelet therapy with these agents and aspirin has either only been studied in small trials, which have shown limb-related benefits, which were lost after one year, or like Rachel mentioned previously, in PAD subgroup analyses of a stable ASCVD population. As such, the guidelines make a moderate class 2 recommendation for dual antiplatelet therapy use after lower extremity revascularization. And actually, in practice, we generally see quite a significant variation in dual antiplatelet therapy use and length of use, sort of depending on the location of the legion, the type of procedure used, and the provider's preference. Now that we have the results from the Voyager trial, I anticipate the use of rivaroxaban 2.5 milligrams twice daily with low-dose aspirin may be used more frequently than dual antiplatelet therapy. And given that the clopidogrel subgroup analysis showed no benefit of dual antiplatelet therapy in either cohort of the trial with an increased risk of bleeding, it'll be interesting to see how often, if at all, dual antiplatelet therapy will be used moving forward. So overall, while the results of the Voyager trial demonstrated reduced cardiovascular and limb-related risk for up to three years, I think a natural question is what to do after three years, and also what to do in patients that may have concomitant coronary artery disease. Well, actually, in the Voyager trial, around 30% of patients did have concomitant CAD, which is reflective of current real-world stats that do tell us that around 30% of United States patients with PAD also have underlying CAD. Now, although the results of the Voyager trial are probably most generalizable to symptomatic PAD patients post-revascularization without CAD, I think it still may be reasonable to use this approach for up to three years with or without concomitant CAD. And after three years is where we can consider the results of the COMPASS trial. So if you'll remember, the COMPASS trial suggested long-term benefit of low-dose rivaroxaban and aspirin in a largely stable CAD and PAD population, while the Voyager results support its use shortly after revascularization in unstable PAD patients. So together, these trials really suggest benefit in the short and long-term prevention of major adverse cardiac and limb events, which I think would be important to consider when deciding appropriate therapy for our patient CC. It would be reasonable to acutely consider low-dose rivaroxaban and aspirin for our patient CC based on the Voyager PAD trial, and in the absence of adverse drug reactions and insurance coverage concerns, it may be appropriate to continue indefinitely to reduce his risk of major adverse cardiac events and major adverse limb events.
0: Well, Navia, Rachel, thank you. Thank you both for being on the X podcast and discussing the role of antiplatelet and anticoagulation therapy, specifically the DOAC rivaroxaban, in patients with peripheral arterial disease following revascularization procedures. Based on your comment, I think it's clear that you think this approach, the anticoagulant and antiplatelet approach, is the preferred approach, so long as the bleeding risks are appropriate and the patient has adequate renal function. Well, tell us what you do in practice. Would, would you favor using rivaroxaban and aspirin in most patients following a lower limb revascularization procedure? Remember, only iFormerX members can leave comments and use the interactive features on the site. If you're not already a member of iFormRx, consider joining today. It's free. And if you are a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist, you should check out the American Pharmacists Association Ambulatory Care Board Prep and Recertification Program. Uh, we've partnered with APHA to make this commentary and podcast available for board recertification credit, and you can earn CE credit, too. Just click on the link at the bottom of the written commentary posted on the iFormerX website to learn more. And lastly, a special thanks to Amy Robertson at the University of Kansas School of Pharmacy for being such a stalwart contributor to iFormerX she and Michelle Bailly have written several commentaries for iFormerX over the past five years. In addition to using iFormerX materials and her teaching activities, she's encouraged others to become members of iFormerX, including her students and residents. So thank you, Amy. This learning community is made possible by enthusiastic volunteers like you. Until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off. Be well, my friends.